morning. How are we doing today? It's a good morning. I'm going to get some... Yeah, this will be for later. You never know. You never know. Well, I'm thankful that you're here. My name is Matt Watson. I'm the lead pastor, and and it is my prayer this morning that um, you would grow and you would be encouraged in your faith. Um, I'm thankful that you're here. Um, Wherever you are in your faith, whatever brought you to this church this morning, um, God has you right where he wants you. And it's my prayer that God would use his word and these people to encourage you in your faith. And Ray mentioned it. I'll mention it again. What a beautiful set of worship. And we would love to have you come back tonight for more focused, extended time of worship. Um, So we'd love to invite you. That's going to start at 6. All families are invited. Um, And so, yeah, we'd love to have you. Let's pray, and we'll get started in the the message this morning. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for every single person here this morning. And we pray, God, now that as we've had this great chance to worship you, the resurrected King, to praise your name, to declare the victory that we have in you, God, I pray that as we study these same topics, God, that we will move from understanding them with our heart as we worship to really thinking deeper about these truths. And so, God, no matter what is heavy on our mind or our hearts this morning, God, that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to hear and to learn from you today. So, God, we ask all of this in the power and the truth of the the Son of God Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we started a series on the book of Ephesians and we made this, I didn't make this, we didn't make this, Keenan made this phone booth and we talked about what it means to be in Christ. And, And we talked about the history of Ephesus and I think it's really important for us to understand the history for us to really understand why Paul is saying what he is saying. And so we learned with Ephesus, the history with, was that this was a city that was at the center of magic and witchcraft, and that there was serious works of the demon, of demons in this city. And alongside of this serious work of the demonic power was also the mighty hand of God doing awesome things through the, the Holy Spirit. And so we talked about this background, and we read about Paul and this crazy story about how Paul was being persecuted. He was being dragged and chased, but yet God was still working. And that three or three years later, Paul writes this letter to this little church, and that started from this from this strong spiritual background because this this little church is struggling. They're struggling with their identity. They're struggling with. Um, getting along. They're struggling with knowing who they are in Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage them, to teach them, to draw them to the power of God, because the main message of Ephesians is that God's power is greater than the demonic powers, that they have nothing against you. 
And so Paul is just reminding them, don't think the power of the, of the witchcraft or these idols that you're bowing to have power compared to what you have in Christ. And so last week we started with worship. We started with worship. Paul is praising God with the people for the fact that they are in Christ. And he says, let's praise God for the spiritual blessings that happen because of the fact that we are in Christ. And he goes through this list of awesome titles that we get for being in Christ, that we're chosen, that we're adopted, redeemed and forgiven, enlightened, that we have an inheritance and that we've been sealed, that God came to get us. That's how much he loves us, that we were chosen by him that he loves us so much that he forgave us, and that this is who we are in Christ. And we talked about how being in Christ means Christ is your advocate, that he stands in front of you, that this is you, and he's literally talking to the Father on your behalf that you don't have to say anything. Like, you don't have to make your case that Jesus, as our advocate for being in Christ, is saying, I've got him covered. I've got her covered. That this is who they are and that what I did covered them. And so this beautiful picture of what it means to be in Christ. And he continues in verse 15. If you have a Bible, I'd, I'd encourage you to open up to Ephesians 1. We're going to really be dissecting this text. It's a long sentence. Okay, the, the last passage that we just studied was the longest sentence in the New Testament. This is like the second longest sentence in the New Testament. Eight verses, 200 some words, and it's confusing. If you just read it straight through, you really have to slow down and, and break it down. And so if you have a Bible, I think it's helpful to see it. I'll put it on the screen as well. We're going to go 15 through 23. Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a prayer. That's a long prayer. We get lost in a prayer like that. What is he saying? Where is he going? Let's break this down. Paul starts by being thankful. He starts with thankfulness. Verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks. Paul begins praying for this group by saying, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for what? Okay, if you look at that first clause in verse 15, it tells you, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I'm thankful for your faith. 
Because this, and we talked about this a little bit last week. We'll talk about it again next week. Being in Christ starts with your faith. Like that's, you, you don't work your way to being in Christ. You, you become in, in Christ by your faith. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, when you believe it, that's how you become in Christ. And he's saying, I'm thankful for your faith, your deep-rooted belief in Christ, our advocate. And I'm thankful for that, but he's not just thankful for their faith, he's thankful for their love, how they love one another. And this is, this is really, I think, helpful to remember that faith and love go together. That there is, in the New Testament, an inseparable link between someone's faith in Christ and how they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot divorce the two. And the picture for us is, is that when we realize that Christ is our advocate, like that he did all of this for us, that he chose and adopted us and redeemed us and forgave us, that he did this for, us, for me. But then all of a sudden we realize that it wasn't just for me, that God our Father didn't do it for just me alone, but for the people, for all people that are sitting around me, for the people that are in this room. And then all of a sudden you realize as a son or a daughter of the king that you have brothers and sisters, that you're not the only one, that it's not just you in this box. You realize there are other people with these same titles and they are your brothers and your sisters. And that changes how we view our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like you would do anything for your own brothers and sisters, it's the same concept. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot disconnect how we love and care for our brothers and sisters in this room with our faith in Christ. And Paul is saying, you're doing this. Like, I'm thankful that your faith has overflowed and impacted how you love the people around you. And I'm thankful that this is happening. And I'm thankful that this is a church, that this is happening. That our faith just isn't just in these walls and in this room on a Sunday morning, but that our faith is overflowing in how we love others, those who are struggling, those who are in a hard situation, if you need someone to visit you, there are people that are knocking on your door in this room that, that want to sit with you. And there are people in this room that want to make a meal for you if you're struggling. There are people in this room that want to connect you in more than just a Sunday morning greeting. And if you haven't experienced that here, the love that comes with the faith, I'd encourage you to, to get plugged in here, to, to take the next step from just attending to maybe join a life group or join a class, like invest yourself because there is love here connected with the faith of those that are here. And Paul is thankful. And he moves on, if you look at 17 and 18, and he, he switches to praying for these believers. He says in 17 and 18, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul is praying for them. He is emphasizing this point here in yellow. 
I mean, if you just look at the words, look at the, just think about the words that are talking about knowledge and understanding, the repetition in these two verses. Okay, you've got four words talking about understanding something deeper. You've got wisdom, you've got revelation, knowledge, you've got enlightenment. And here's what he's saying. I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your heart to realize these truths right here. Paul's not praying for health. He's not talking about their future. He's saying, I am praying that the eyes of your heart, that you would understand and know without a shadow of a doubt that this is who you are in Christ. This is what he's praying for them. And he's going to break this down, and we're going to talk about the specifics of what he's praying for. But the heart is, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit who is in you has declared this to be true for who you are. And so he emphasizes this with the repetition of wisdom and revelation and knowledge and enlightenment. And he goes on, and the rest of this passage is specifically talking about the realities that he's praying for. Okay, and there's three different things, realities that he's praying for, and I think we're going to focus on these for the remainder of the message. First thing that he's praying for in verse 18, the second half, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He is praying that the eyes of their heart would be opened, that they would know without a shadow of a doubt of the hope that they've been called to. That worked good. A little wobbly. He wants them to know hope. My older brother, about 15 years ago, gave me a book, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, I don't know why. I've never asked him why he gave me this book. It's, it's I don't, yeah, I need to ask him. Um, I was listening to a sermon a couple years ago, and, and the pastor referenced this book. And I thought, man, I've heard of that book. So I found it, and I read the book. It's a really fascinating book. Um, there's a, it's about a man named Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychotherapist during World War II. So a Jewish psychotherapist who's in Auschwitz. And what's really interesting about this book is you have this doctor who is his entire life has read people, try to understand how people respond to things and how they react to certain situations. And this book is about what he finds about his Jewish brothers and sisters and how they respond to this devastating situation. And what he, his summary was fascinating to me. Here are the responses that he kind of concluded are how people handled being at Auschwitz during World War II as a Jewish person. Here's how they responded. First, he says, people often got brutal. So his fellow Jews often got brutal. Even the nicest people in the death camps became brutal and cruel to other inmates. They would do anything to survive. And he shares many examples of how this is true, how his Jewish brothers and sisters, given the opportunity in a desperate situation, would quickly turn their backs to get something. He said, second, people gave up. He said, and I quote, many prisoners just lost all hope. And with all hope, he lost his spiritual hold. Usually this happened quite suddenly. 
the symptoms of which were familiar to us experienced camp inmates. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when a prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just laid there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. And he shares this story. He says, my senior block warden, who was a fellow Jew, a well-known composer once told me he had a dream that the war was going to end on March 30th. He was convinced his dream was a revelation. And as the day drew near, though it became clear from news reports that the war was not going to end, March 29th finally came. He suddenly began running a high temperature. On March 30th, his day, he lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. The loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all the diseases of the camp. People gave up. Thirdly, he says, people held on. So people became brutal. People gave up. People held on. He says, and I quote, many held on through the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, their professional achievements, fortune, and position in society, those things that had been their hope would be restored. But after liberation, so many found that when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was much different than what they longed for. Many fell into deep depression for the rest of their lives, and many still committed suicide. No earthly happiness can compensate for us all that we suffered. And afterwards, we were not prepared to handle this disillusionment. So the hope was we're going to get out of here. We're going to have our family back. We're going to have our friends back. We're going to have our jobs back. But what happened was, is that it wasn't the same. That what they hoped for was to get through it for something on the other side, but ultimately they were disillusioned. Fourthly, he says, only a few of the prisoners kept their full inner liberty and obtained an inner strength that raised them above their fate. It says, life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depth and its foundation. What's the foundation? And listen to this. Life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. Remember that somebody is looking down from, on you from heaven, a friend, a wife, a spouse, or even God. We must not disappoint them. Here's what he concluded. What you put your hope in determines how you're going to live your life. What you put your hope in determines how you're going to handle suffering. And the people that survived Auschwitz were the people that did not hope in something temporal, but it was a hope on somebody looking down on them that had purpose and meaning, even though they were in an unspeakable situation. He's saying, how you hoped impacted how you lived. This is the idea of hope. Okay, when we think of hope, when we talk about hope, we, we express doubt a lot of times with our hope. Well, well I, I really hope we get our house permitting sometime this century. You know, like, it's probably not going to happen, but 
or I really hope the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl. Like, I hope, but I don't know. They're not looking too good. Like, they look pretty bad. Like, we have, when we say we hope for something, usually comes with that is this extreme doubt. And biblical hope is much different. Okay? Hebrews talks about this assurance that comes with hope. This, this we know it's going to happen. First Peter talks about our hope is alive. It's living. There's this, this more assurance or certainty with the hope in the New Testament that we have hope that there is a God looking down on us and that he's got great things for us, maybe not here in every situation, but that he's got something even better in store for us. And Paul is praying, I want you to know the hope that he's called you to that your life is bigger than right here and right now what's in front of you. Because when our hope is in what's in front of us right here and right now, what happens? Just like the inmates, the Jews, they, they became discouraged. They became discouraged because things don't pan out the way that we want them to pan out. Our hope must be something bigger. And that's what Paul's praying for. Secondly, verse 18, and I love this. I love this. He says, so I'm praying that you have hope. I'm also praying that you would understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You can just keep it here on this slide. What are the glorious riches in the saints? He's praying that they would know their worth. Now, just look at this passage for a second. Okay, when we talk about inheritance, the first thing we think of is, what has God got for me? What is he saving? Like, I can't wait to get the inheritance. Okay, but if you read this passage slowly, that's not what he is talking about here. Look at what he says. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Who is the his? The his is, it's God. Now, there are different understandings on how this should be translated. So some people actually think it is the, the inheritance of the saints, of the, of the followers of those who are in Christ. But most people see this phrase translated in this exact same way. The person that is doing the inheriting is God. And then what then would be the inheritance? Us. We are the inheritance that God is waiting for. Just think about that for a second. You are the inheritance God cannot wait to get. Your worth and your value is that you're an inheritance. I wish, I pray that we would understand our value the way that God sees our value. Right here, he calls us his treasure, like, well, he can't wait to get. He can't wait to have it. And I pray that, like Paul prays, that we would understand that this is our value. This is our worth. We are his inheritance. But what do we do? We devalue ourselves. Like, we don't see our value in this, that we are these things as Christ is our advocate. We devalue ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I haven't accomplished enough. Oh, wait till you see what I've done. I've messed up. I've done these things. We just 
constantly find some imperfection in ourselves and we devalue who we are. We do not view ourselves as the treasured possession of the inheritance that God knows we are. That's not how we think about ourselves. I think of my kids. Caroline was born with a little red mark on her knee, um, and it was nothing. It looked like a little giraffe head. I don't, that's weird, but... Um, and it was not a big deal, but I just remember the doctor had said to us that we could have it removed. It could be dangerous, or it could, you know, there was other things that, I don't know, I don't remember. And we thought about it, and there's nothing wrong with that, with thinking about what could this, what could this become, or should we get it removed, but we just decided, no. And now it's like gone, it's basically disappeared. But just imagine if my daughter would ever come home and think that her value or her worth to our family has anything to do with a little mark on her knee. No, that's mind-boggling. No, she, her worth and how precious she is to us has nothing to do with anything physical. Or think about your kids. Their value has nothing, hopefully, to do with what they accomplish. One day, hopefully, we will give our kids whatever inheritance we have, okay? And that has nothing to do with what college they go to or what sports team that they're on or how good of grades they get. Their value is so much bigger than that. It's the fact that they're my son and my daughter, that's why we love them. That's who they are. And it's not based on anything they do. Even if they mess up completely, it changed nothing about how much I value them. Nothing. And that's what God is, our Father is saying to us, his children. You are my inheritance. First Peter, he describes it. You are my chosen people. You are my treasured possession. I can't wait to be with you. I pray that we would know how much value God places on us, his children. And that's exactly what he's praying. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Lastly, verse 19, and this really takes the rest of the passage. Paul is praying that we would know the greatness of his power towards us the immeasurable greatness of the power that's in us because of Christ. Some translations, the key phrase there, if you look in verse 19, is the, what is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? The word toward there is a preposition. And that preposition is, can be translated in many different ways, depending on your translation or how you look at this, this whole passage the ESV uses toward. Some translations will use in us who believe or for us who believe. I think it all works together here. He's saying, you have power in you because of Christ. A couple, many years ago, several years ago, my wife was going away for the weekend. She had the kids and she said, now this is, I'm not going to say this nicely. She said, I'm going away with the children. It would be nice if you could accomplish some tasks around the house. Um, and so she gave me a list, and I remember it was a Saturday, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, and I'm not handy. 
So I remember thinking, I need to do the easiest ones first and see if I can get to the harder ones. Well, one of the, the top of the list was changing a light fixture outside of our house. So we had about 12 steps going up to our house in Virginia. It was just a little entryway, and right on the outside was an old can light. And she had asked me to change it, and I said, okay, I can do that. Um, and so when dealing with power, you, you are all much more handy than I am here. You know the first thing you do when you're dealing with power and lighting is what? Yes, of course. And I did that. I turned it off. I turned off all the power. Well, I go down to the fuse box. Of course, nothing is labeled. So I turn off all, I turn off everything. It was, yeah, yeah, that's what I did. If you're laughing at that, this is going to get real bad. <laughs> so I come back up, I get a ladder, and because it's just a little entryway, I I'm, I'm climb up this ladder and quickly realize this is not as simple as I was thinking. I mean, I'm up on a ladder, I'm leaning over up on this brick wall, and I've taken it down, and of course this T-bracket was not fitting. I could not get this thing to fit. The screws weren't lined up. I'm trying to get the screws, and all the, I'm hanging like this, trying to get, and then these wires, I'm trying to connect the wires, and I'm exhausted. Okay, this, this thing here, the ground wire, okay, I'm trying to, I don't even know what this is. I'm like, is this necessary? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm getting it all situated, and I needed to take a break while I'd already had the wires connected, and my arms are, I'm exhausted. And so I come, and I'm the screws weren't going in, so I had to just let it hang for a minute because I was tired. I have to explain myself. I don't want to be judged. So I let it hang by the wires, and I come down off the ladder because I'm exhausted, and it falls to the ground, and the ground wire rips out of the back. And I remember that's when I thought, that this, like, do I really need that? Like, <laughs> so I said, no, I better check. I better, I better get on the Internet and check to see if this is a, something that's important. So I go back on, I, I have to go down, turn the power on to get to the internet. Turn the power back on, get on the internet. Yeah, you know where this is going. Get on the internet, Google. Is ground wire necessary or how do I reattach your ground wire? Oh, you just twist it, so I do that. Reattach the ground wire, go back outside and I'm, let's see, how do I say this in a pastoral way? I'm righteously fuming at this point. <laughs> And I am take, and I climb up that ladder, and I'm just ready to be done with this. This is the first one of many things I'm supposed to be doing, and I rip that thing. I push this thing in. I have a screwdriver at this point, and all of a sudden, I felt a current <laughs> go through my body. So when I turned back the power on to get on the internet, I forgot to go back and turn it off. And that current, that power took me off the ladder. Like, I felt it go all the way down, and I fell I, right next to him. I'm like, I have never felt like anything like that before. It's power. Power, this similar feeling of what it talks about when it says the power of Christ that is in you. Just contemplate this for a minute. Paul is saying, you have a power that is inside of you right now, this moment with being in Christ. That's available to you. 
And he goes on to talk about what this power is. And this is the emphasis of the passage. He's saying, I just wish you would know what the power of Christ is that's in your life right now. And this is what he's praying. Four words. Again, he's emphasizing power. Look at verse 19. Four words for power that he's using. Power, the working of his great might. Power, working, might, and worked. All different words there. All four words there that are used in other places in the New Testament to talk about power. One of the words might is used to talk about the power of Christ to do miracles. You've got these different words. One means energy. That's ironic. You've got one word that talks about strength. He's saying there are these, all the power that we see in the New Testament, this is the power that is inside of you. And then he goes on and he closes these last couple of verses. He says, you need to understand the power that is in you. Let me show you some examples of that power that is currently inside of you. And so he gives us four examples of how God has displayed his power and how that power is a part of your life. And remember, for the, the church here, this is, it makes sense that he would talk about power, right? The spiritual holds on people, the, the demonic work that's happening all around them, like it makes sense that they, he would be talking about the power of Christ that's in them and available to them. First is this, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God raised Christ from the dead. Just think about this. The same power that God used to raise Christ from the grave is available to you right now. That same power. And it's like I was thinking about God's power. Like, of all the examples that Paul could have used to talk about God's power. Like I, I would probably would have picked the power of God in creation. He spoke everything into existence. Every single star, three billion trillion stars, God spoke and they showed up. The energy that's in each of those three billion stars of what it can do for thousands and thousands of years with our understanding of energy is mind-blowing. The power that's seen in creation is unspeakable. But no, Paul wants to talk about something even better than creation. He talks about resurrection, life from the dead. God takes something that is not alive and he makes it alive. Think about this. If God can bring life out of death, he can bring whatever mess you've made of your life into something better. Think about like That's the point of the resurrection. Something is dead. My son is dead and now he's alive. That same power can take the messes that we have made of our lives and can make it into something new and beautiful and alive. Like that's the power that's available to us. Secondly, verse 20, it talks about God seating Christ at the right hand in the heavenly places. 
It's more than just the miracle of the resurrection. He's been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. To seat at the right of someone who has power is to say, this person has equal power that I do. Equal authority. And so he's saying, my son sits next to me and he has power above everything you know. Specifically, if you go in 21, it says far above rule and authority and power and dominion. It's talking about the realm or the classification of the evil ones or the demons. And he's saying, my power is bigger and greater than that. The same, and this, again, they were in a community that worshiped Diana, that believed in possession and fortune telling. And so he's saying, my power by my son who sits next to me is greater than all the witchcraft that you can, that you can be a part of. Thirdly, verse 22, God subjected everything to Christ. It says he put all things under his feet. In case you're not quite getting the picture, Paul's saying, let me give you another example. Christ, everything sits under his feet. Like the picture is complete dominance, complete power and authority. Everything falls under his feet. We talked about this phrase of being underneath feet this summer when we talked about the Psalms. There was a Psalm that I talked about, Psalm 8, that talked about everything being under our feet as creation, that the, that the animals and the birds and the, the animals that he's created are underneath us. And what this is telling us is that Jesus is Lord over everything. His power stretches across everything. Then lastly, again, he's just hitting this point over and over and over again. 22, God gave him as head over all things two or four, the church. He's saying, just one more time, let me tell you. God's power in Christ is over everything. He is the head. He is dominating, in control of, over everything. And here's the point. And he says this is for the church, to the church, or for the church. We have access to this power. And this is what Paul is praying. Paul is praying, I wish you would know the hope that you have that is above your situation. I wish you would know how valuable you are to God, that this is who you are in Christ and that you are his inheritance and nothing you've done, no trait that you have, no physical part, like none of it determines your value to God. And lastly, he's saying, I wish you knew the power the power that was available to you today to help you get out of this addiction or this pain that you're experiencing or this guilt that you face, that there's power in Christ, the same power that rose Christ from the grave that is available to you to take your life and to make it beautiful and alive. And as Paul prays this, I pray this for you and for myself that we would experience these things that Paul's prayed for. Let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll sing a song that talks about the power that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your son, we have been declared all these things, chosen and redeemed and forgiven. 
that it's in your son. It's not in, in ourselves. It's not in our own names, but that it's, it's in your son. And God, I pray for me and for this church that we would realize these things as well, that we would realize the hope that we have that is outside of this place. It's laid up for us that things are gonna get better one day, that we would hold on to that hope and that hope would help us as we suffer and we struggle. That if there's somebody who needs that hope right now, that you would help them, God, to hold on to something that is above their situation. And God, that we would know and believe our value in a world that devalues everyone, in a world where we devalue ourselves and compare ourselves to everyone. God, I pray that you would help us to drown out the noise and to embrace the fact that we are your treasured inheritance. That we would know it and we would believe it and we would live like we believe it. And that if there's somebody in here who is just down on themselves, who beats themselves up constantly, God, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would communicate and help them to understand their precious value in Christ. And lastly, God, power. There's power. We, are, we have the ability, because of what you've given us in Christ and through the spirit, to have access to power, the same power that rose your son from the dead. And that if anyone in here feels stuck or chained to something or struggling with something, that they feel like there is no way that I can get out of this. God, by the power of your spirit, help them to know. Open their eyes to see and to know that the power that is in you is greater, greater than anything else they know. So whatever it is, God, whatever you're, you're speaking to our hearts right now, I pray that as we sing this last song, God, that you would speak these truths over us, that we would hold on to them, and that maybe we would talk to someone about these, maybe a spouse or a friend, an elder, and God, that you would continue to work in our lives. All because of your son can we pray these things. Amen.